0: Cloud break, Chapter 2 Two Stones There was a young seeker of the sea folk named Estelle who lived in a small village along the Atlantic Fault. Estelle was only 12 years old, but she had already become one of the sea folk's most skilled and reliable seekers. Like many of her profession, she came from a long line of seekers. Her mother had been a promising young seeker before a fierce skirmish with the sky people left her paralyzed below the waist. Estelle's grandmother, after whom Estelle had been named, was regarded as the most talented seeker of her time until her sudden disappearance at the age of 25. Having lost her mother and her mobility, Estelle's mother was hesitant to see her beloved daughter enter into their increasingly dangerous family profession. But the needs of the community were dire, and she could not in good conscience deprive the Seafolk of her daughter's inarguable gifts when the discovery of a single algal bloom could mean the difference between starvation and survival for a whole network of villages. Besides, Estelle loved being a seeker. It was what she was born to do. She loved the peace of the vast ocean, the melody of the humpbacks, a melody that she did not simply hear, but could feel in her bones. One evening, Estelle and her mother were sitting together in the family's small common room. Estelle's father was away, as he often was. He worked long hours in the thermal plant in the central village of their cluster. Her baby brother was asleep in a bassinet in the corner. Estelle and her mother both had one hand gently resting on the other's cheek so as to read the other's facial expressions, as was customary for communicating with close friends and family in the pitch dark world of the sea folk. Estelle's other hand explored the contours of a flat round object that she wore as a necklace. Have you really told me everything about this mama? Yes my love I keep telling you that I only know what my father told me. That it appeared on your grandmother's pillow the day after the tower lost contact with her. He never spoke of it other than that day that he gave it to me. You never asked him about it? Estelle persisted. Of course I did, a thousand times. But he would only say that it was inexplicable, a mysterious gift that brought him some small comfort after your grandmother disappeared. So, he didn't have any idea of what these engravings might mean, or what it's made out of? Estelle passed her thumb over the object, which we would all instantly recognize as a smooth round stone. We would also recognize the engraving, the silhouette of a sprawling tree with its root system. But of course, none of the sea folk had any conception whatsoever of river stones or trees. No, I think for him it was a remembrance of your grandmother and that was enough. I, of course, wondered about it ceaselessly, just as you do now. I suspect it will always be a mystery. Estelle's right hand felt a sadness in her mother's face. She placed the stone back under her shirt. Is this the worst it's been in your lifetime, Mama? The hunger, I mean? It was a long time before her mother answered. Yes, Estelle. I think this is the worst. Estelle felt her mother's countenance change, and trying to be cheerful, she said, But the whales always look after us, and that hasn't changed. Now, let's get some rest. No sooner had she finished her sentence when mother and daughter sat up straight. They had recognized the deep vibrational series of pulses. A message from the tower, only perceptible to seekers. It was brief and to the point. All seekers report. Estelle leapt off her bed, grabbed her bag and embraced her mother. I love you, mama. Give father my love. Her right hand could sense the pain and anxiety in her mother's face beneath the tender loving smile. Be safe, my darling. Her mother said through stifled tears. Remember, we love you more than anything. You are more precious than any bloom. Be safe. Estelle kissed her on the forehead and did the same to her sleeping baby brother before opening the door and sprinting down the passageway. Her bones were vibrating with the melody of whale song. far away in the small backwater city-state of Phoebus. A young seeker named Peter Marinus looked pensively at the wind gauges hovering in the distance off the airfield balcony. Phoebus was the smallest and most vulnerable of the seven remaining city-states of the sky. Even though he was among the youngest seekers of all the sky people, Peter was a seeker of the old school. Phoeban seekers were the last sky people to fly albatross, and even among the Phoebans, the swallow had nearly replaced the great birds. Seeking, like nearly everything else the sky people engaged in, was a business. Few Phoeban families had the means to pay for the famed seeker academies in the powerful city states of Gabilon and Tarsus, and hunger was no stranger to the Phoebans. Peter had been trained by his father, who had in turn been trained by his father, the famed seeker also named Peter Marinus, who had claimed more blooms in his short life than any seeker from any city-state on record. The elder Peter simply disappeared one day, presumably while patrolling near the great storm. Orion, the great albatross that four generations of Peter's family had ridden before him, and whose 30-foot wingspan was remarkable, even for his regal species, returned one week after Peter the Elder's disappearance without his rider. Fastened to the empty saddle, Peter's grandmother had found a curious object, a flat, hard disk, made out of a gray substance with curious, indecipherable engravings. Peter's father had worn the disk around his neck, and when Peter finished the final examinations and officially became a Theban seeker, he gave the disc to his son. It was this mysterious object, exactly like Estelle's many miles beneath the surface of the great ocean, that Peter fingered absent mindedly as he gazed upon the sea of cloud. He could feel the looseness of his clothing. These past months had been lean times for all sky people and as usual, the Phoebans fared the worst. Peter thought of his mother. How strange that it had already been seven years since she had passed during the birth of Peter's younger sister. That too had been a time of privation. It tortured Peter to think that if a Phoeban seeker had simply claimed one more bloom that year, that his mother might have had the strength to make it through the taxing labor. Without the sense of hearing, Sky People communicated entirely in subtle, intricate hand gestures. The gestures were interpreted and transmitted into data by thin gloves lined with sensors and broadcast to tiny receivers embedded in the ubiquitous tinted goggles that Sky People wore day and night. The message was finally projected in a language of color and pattern that sky people could read with rapidity and precision. Peter turned and was heading for the albatross stables, the only such institution still existing in all the seven city-states, when an intricate sequence of colored dots flashed on the inner lens of his goggles. Brother, the message said, come quickly. Orion is acting strange. Cloudbreak is written and performed by me, Charles Morse, and was created in collaboration with Elena Russell.